A warning to our listeners, particularly those who have experienced sexual trauma, this episode includes a clinical description of pelvic floor muscle assessment, a process that is similar to a gynecological or prostate exam. Hi, this is Ellie from Dancewell Podcast, and today I'm talking about the pelvic floor with Dr. Brooke Winder. Dr. Brooke Winder is an assistant professor in the Department of Dance at California State University, Long Beach, where she coordinates the bachelor's degree program in dance science and teaches courses in anatomy, injury prevention, wellness, and Pilates. Brooke is also a practicing physical therapist specializing in orthopedics, dance medicine, and pelvic floor health. She treats patients with Sartan Physical Therapy, a leading pelvic floor health clinic in the Southern California area. And on her own, she also provides backstage care for touring dance companies, PT services for summer dance intensives, and workshops for dancers and dance educators on injury prevention. Brooke's research interests focus on the low back and pelvic floor, and she's published in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, Journal of Electromyography and Kinesiology, and Orthopedic Physical Therapy Practice Magazine. She's presented work at venues such as the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science Annual Conference and PAMA, the Performing Arts Medicine Association International Symposium. Brooke has a doctorate in physical therapy from the University of Southern California and a Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Dance from Chapman University. She's a board-certified specialist in orthopedic physical therapy, a BOSI-certified Pilates instructor, and a former professional dancer with Orange County-based Backhouse Dance. And she can be found on Instagram at Dr. Brooke Winder PT, and we um, will list all her contact on our website. Brooke, thank you so much for being with us today. This is such a great topic. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk about it. Um. So let's start by illuminating um, the pelvic floor, sort of just the sort of geography of the area, if you will. The anatomy is what we call it with the body. Um, what, what is included in the pelvic floor? Um, what are we talking about when we use this term? So um, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I will say the the easiest way to begin to understand it, if you're not that familiar with the region, is to um, some people speak about the pelvic floor as just the pelvic floor muscles, which is what I'll probably talk about the most today. Um, so I'm going to start with that. Um, the muscles of the pelvic floor um, are several layers. There's actually three layers. Um, a lot of people, I think, if you think about pelvic floor muscles, you might think of just one big muscle at the bottom of your pelvis. There's actually three layers, and they sit kind of like a hammock or a sling, and they stretch from front to back on the pelvis, so from your pubic bone to your tailbone, and also from side to side, so from basically sits bone to sits bone along the floor of the pelvis. And there are three layers, as I said. Um, there's actually several muscles, and basically the two layers that are closest to the surface of your body um, tend to support more of the openings toward the front of your pelvic floor. Um, and then the third layer, or that deepest layer that sits closer to your organs, um, stretches a little bit more toward the back, toward your tailbone. Um, and within this whole region, of course, is you know, your bladder, your rectum, um, depending male and female prostate, 
um, uterus. So uh, we've also got organs there. And then we have a ton of fascia and blood vessels and nerves as well. Great. So you said um, mostly we think about just the muscles, um, but then you listed the organs and then also the fascia and also a ton of ligaments, right? Yes. So our pelvis, of course, um, actually has quite a few ligaments. So, you know, our pelvic floor is is attached and connected to uh, the bottom of the pelvis, but also the sides and the back of the pelvis and intertwines with a lot of the ligaments that cross our sacroiliac joint region, as well as ligaments that run deep into the hip. So there are a lot of ligaments that interplay as well. And I, I think it's also helpful to not just think of this floor region, but to try to visualize or understand the anatomy um, in relationship to the rest of the body. And I'm sure we can talk about this more later, Um, but I often will tell patients that maybe you can think of your whole trunk above that as a cylinder, or some people like to visualize just a can of Coke, um, something very simple. Um, And the lid of that Coke can you could think of as, as maybe your diaphragm, your respiratory diaphragm, the front wall of the cylinder being your abdominal wall, the back wall is all your back muscles um, and your spine. And then the bottom floor of the Coke can, which is not exactly flat, is your pelvic floor. So it's very much also um, something that interacts with the rest of your trunk above it. Great. And you mentioned, of course, the difference um, in the viscera that might exist for men and women. Are there other differences between um, the male and female pelvic floor besides the adjacent organs, and of course, the size? Yeah, so um, the when we're talking about the muscles, most of the muscles are relatively similar, although the orientation of, um, the, and I'll talk a little bit about more pelvic floor function soon, um, but the orientation of some of the muscles that are toward the front are going to be slightly different um, in uh, biologically male versus a female pelvis, because some of those muscles actually control um our genitalia and are related to those organs. So that's where some of those differences lie. Um, The other thing that I think it's helpful to know is obviously sort of the orientation and the shape of the urethra in women versus men is different um, as well, which can interplay um, with lots of other factors as to why we might see uh, urinary leakage present differently in a female pelvis versus a male pelvis. Great. Um, so that starts to get into some of the dysfunction that happens when there are issues in the pelvic floor. But at its best, when it's functioning well, what is the purpose of the fel- pelvic floor? What's its function? Uh, so the pelvic floor has a lot of functions. Um, some people will will try to help themselves remember the function of the fel- pelvic floor, at least some of the functions um, with the idea of the five S's. Um, so if that's helpful for you to remember. Um, so one of the S's is support, um, particularly uh, the deeper muscles of the pelvic floor, as well as the fascia and the ligaments there, support the organs. So it's like a basket, essentially, that helps um, keep those organs snugged and in place, particularly with impact and pressure. Um, there's also sphincter function. So essentially, that just means our pelvic floor helps to keep things closed when we want them closed. So when we need to hold our urine or our feces in, our pelvic floor helps us do that. And on the opposite end, our pelvic floor helps us 
to urinate when we need to urinate, and it helps us have a bowel movement. Um, a third S is sexual function. So the muscles and the nerves of the pelvic floor help produce arousal and orgasm. And the fourth S would be stability. So you can think about the pelvic floor itself as really creating a lot of stability and transfer of force along the pelvis and also from the floor up. So what's happening in our legs and our hips gets transferred through the pelvis as well as the pelvic floor up toward the trunk and vice versa from the trunk downward toward the floor. Um, the last S is the idea of a sump pump, um, which is something sort of funny to think about, but basically it means it's also really helpful with lymph drainage and movement of fluid, um, which is really, really uh, obviously helpful function for our body. And then there's things that don't fall exactly into those five S's. Um, our pelvic floor is really, really great and important for interacting with our breathing system. So it has a great anatomical relationship with our respiratory diaphragm and also the diaphragm kind of in our throat, so our glottal region, in terms of regulating breathing and also helping to regulate the pressure in our trunk as well. Great. Okay. Um, so I think when we think about dysfunction in the pelvic floor, I mean, this area is starting to get a little more attention just in the past, I would say, five years. Do you think that's true? Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I think the attention is starting to rise and there's more and more people comfortable talking about it and also trying to get the word out there for sure. And I think that the start of the first people in this country here in America to get on board, we're probably postpartum women, you know, and so we're getting into that um, sphincter function of um, having leakage. And, mm -hmm. um, and there have been just recently some articles in dance magazines um, about pelvic floor. So we're starting to see a little bit with, with dancers. So besides just peeing your pants when you don't want to. Um, I mean, when do you want to pee your pants? But <laughs> pee, like peeing when you don't want to. Exactly. Um, that's sort of the more obvious dysfunction in the pelvic floor. So we can talk about that. But I'm also interested in these things that you said, like transfer of force. I mean, that seems so important and so um, nuanced and complex. And then breathing and pressure. And so let's talk now about what happens when the pelvic floor isn't functioning so well? What type of dysfunctions do we see? What do you treat? What are people suffering from um, when they're having pelvic floor dysfunction? Sure. Um, and I, I'm going to say before I start listing all of these things that mm -hmm. um, I feel like it could be a very scary sounding list. Uh -huh. <laughs> so um, I know that we'll get directed that these are things that I and many other pelvic floor health therapists help people with. Um, but I think it, it's easy to hear the list sound very scary because the pelvic floor is a very intimate part of our body. Um, so it's very, very much a helper and controller of basic things that make life very lovely <laughs> if things are working well. Um, so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I think the idea of leakage is probably the most familiar. Um, so urinary leakage, of course, is a problem um, that's, that's fairly common, um, and, and postpartum women um, are certainly sort of, as you mentioned, um, something we're most familiar with, I think. Um, 
male pelvises can have urinary leakage as well. Um, we don't talk about it as much, and we really don't know what the percentages are, but fecal leakage, um, which a lot of people don't like to report, but that can be problematic as well um, and, and something that we treat very often. Um, we also can, can think about other types of presentations. So when it comes to your bladder, um, you might not have a problem with leakage, but maybe the idea, um, and I see this quite frequently, but frequent urination, having to pee all the time, feeling like you kind of have that small bladder or an overactive bladder where you get a lot of urge to go um, that's interrupting your life or interrupting your sleep. Um, you can have difficulty emptying the bladder. So we sort of talked about the one end of of emptying when you don't want it to, but actually being able to sit down and empty can be problematic, um, can have retention issues. Um, on sort of the bowel side, constipation can actually be something that can be related and linked to the pelvic floor. Um, you actually see with quite a few of our patients, um, along with painful bowel movements or pelvic pain that happens with or after bowel movements. Um, to continue my scary list, I guess, um, <laughs> tailbone pain is, is another mm. common thing that, that we see, um, which can happen, right, if, mm -hmm. if you've fallen onto your tailbone. Um, we actually see a lot of patients where they've had that in their history maybe even years before, and that is linked to something that's going on currently um, and not uncommon, and I think not uncommon for our dancers having had a fall. Um, Along, um, again, this probably has gotten more attention um, with postpartum care, but pelvic or organ prolapse, mm -hmm. which if you're listening as a patient, this is the feeling that maybe something is falling or pushing out, um, like a tampon falling out feeling, but it, um, there are different types, and I don't think it's necessary to go in into all of them today, but sort of the um, different ways of the vaginal walls or the organs um, slightly herniating downward or descending downward. Um, it is a little bit more common after vaginal, um, in terms of risk factors, things like vaginal delivery um, with babies and age can be a factor as well as hypermobility. Um, and then we kind of have this big category of pelvic pain. Um, there's lots of different presentations of pelvic pain. Um, it could be lower abdominal pain, even painful periods um, that really are hard to manage um, that could be or not be associated with things like endometriosis. Um, pain in the perineum, genital pain. Um, for men, even symptoms that maybe would mimic something like prostatitis, so um, but with negative test results or for women feeling like you have a bladder infection all the time, but every time you go and get a culture, it's negative. Um, things like rectal spasms, painful sitting. Um, there's, there's kind of a big broad spectrum of, of pelvic pain presentations um, as well as nerve pain. So there are nerves that specifically feed the pelvic floor that can get irritated or inflamed in, in, in rare cases and trapped. Um, that can cause some severe pain. So it's a really fun list, mm -hmm. uh, as you can imagine. But I think it's important for people listening just to know that if you have some symptoms that sound like this, that that would be what could clue you in that perhaps treatment to the pelvic floor could be really helpful for you. Let's talk about that. I mean, we have to get into the specifics of 
dance ultimately. But if someone suspects that they have some issue with their pelvic floor, um, who do they go to and what can they expect from treatment? Sure. Um, so I, I will I will say that there are, I'm um, just going to kind of put it out there, that there are some some symptoms, especially with pelvic pain, um, that of course can mimic things that that could potentially be a little bit more serious, um, but rare. Um, so I I do um, just want to put that out there, just as information, mm-hmm. where um, checking in with physicians and making sure that if your symptoms are really strange and unusual, and there's not really a you know an inciting event, that that is something that that you want to make sure you're medically clearing that there's nothing big or scary going on in the pelvis, and that would be with um, you know with your MD or um, gynecologist, urologist, urogyne, um, and um, or your OB um, if you're pregnant or postpartum. Um, but uh, those are people that most um, sort of where, where I work. So I work um, as a physical therapist in pelvic floor treatment. We work um, very closely with a lot of those types of physicians. Um, so in terms of treatment, if there is a pelvic floor issue going on or you think a pelvic floor issue might be going on with you, uh, physical therapists are that specialize in pelvic health treatment um, are very appropriate for you to see. And there is um, some emerging good support for the benefits of pelvic floor physical therapy, really mitigating symptoms for a lot of patients. Um, I think you asked what to expect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. From treatment. Yep. Um, Yeah. So if you're coming in, it can really catch people off guard if they don't know. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Um, So when you see a pelvic floor physical therapist, um, usually they're they're going to talk to you and explain this to you before. But but if you haven't been warned um, (laughs) beforehand, of course, it can be surprising that part of the assessment as to whether your pelvic floor is a factor usually involves an internal muscle assessment, which can be done vaginally or rectally. um, And we may assess both, um, depending on, you know, male, female, and what's going on. Um, That is always with um, a lot of explanation before, and also a lot of looking at things the way I would say an orthopedic physical therapist would look at things, where we would look at your motion, and we look at everything externally as well, um, before we we really would assess that internally. Um, and that that happens, again, like I said, with a patient's permission, we usually take out a model and explain everything that we're going to do beforehand. Um, you're, um, you know, asked if you want to have somebody in the room to help you feel more comfortable other than the therapist. That's always welcome and, and recommended if you want some, you know, family member or spouse or something like that um, to feel more comfortable. And then what we're doing is it's not, um, so for women, it's not like your gynecological exam where there's a speculum. <laughs> um, we're checking your muscles. So um, usually with our hands, we're just a feeling for tender points, feeling how your muscles can contract and how they relax and how much maybe muscle endurance you have. So it's in some ways very similar to the way we would assess a muscle externally, just um, obviously a lot more um, intimate and and with the consideration of your comfort level. Great. Um, And then you do a lot of um, various types of therapy. I mean, if a orthopedic PT is 
maybe sometimes retraining gait. You guys will often literally retrain someone how to sit on the toilet. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. So we talk about, um, so if we're thinking about things like how to sit on the toilet um, and how to avoid, we talk a lot, um, and this could apply for really almost anybody in terms of pelvic floor health, but making sure that when you urinate, you are not rushing um, and forcing the pee out um, because you're, you're overworking, you're overstressing your uh, pelvic floor. Um, we also talk about how um, it's really much more helpful for bowel movements to be in a much deeper squat position. So mm-hmm. here in the U.S., our toilets are actually really, really high up um, for what would be ideal for our position um, in terms of emptying and making everything work less hard to relax. So we'll usually recommend that that people will put their feet up on a stool or yoga blocks or if you've ever seen the commercials for things like the squatty potty, mm-hmm. um, they sort of have a really fun commercial. <laughs> um, but anything to prop your feet up so that your knees are a little bit higher um, to improve that angle and improve the ease of bowel movements. Um, we also talk a lot about um, general ways to get your pelvic floor um, coordinating better, working better. And that's going to depend on if your pelvic floor might be overworking or in pain or overly shortened versus maybe really presenting with just weakness. So we will incorporate strengthening exercises for your pelvic floor muscles, but also in a very functional way. So, um, it's not just about necessarily kegeling. Um, you're learning to interact with, you know, things like squats and dance movements and whatever is, is important in your life um, that you need to do. And um, on the other end, if your pelvic floor is overworking, we might be teaching you ways to relax or what we call downtrain the pelvic floor. So it learns how to go into relaxation, a lot of breathing and mindfulness. So we work with a lot of different practitioners depending on what a patient might need in terms of their healing. Um, So it's usually never just um, working with the physical therapist. We work uh, with physicians um, of different specialties, so gynecologists, urogynecologists, urologists, um, other physicians, as well as nutritionists when needed, uh, psychologists, mindfulness practitioners, Um, And then a lot of our patients, um, depending on what they do, so if they're an athlete or a dancer, um, we're going to be interacting, of course, working from that perspective. But some of our patients who might be less active, we try to get them involved in appropriate exercise that is going to help them toward their goals as well. Great. Um, I mean, I could just ask you so many things about that alone, but we need to move forward. Um, (laughs) You did mention mention that... um, there's some emerging research that PT can be mitigating to um, pain or, or dysfunction. What is the research like on the pelvic floor? Um, are the rumors true? Has there been a lot of research done in Europe that we're just getting our hands on in America? Or are we all just learning about this? Um, and is there any specific to dancers? Great question. Um you know, I always say, of course, if I start talking about research and what's out there and what's not out there, then I'm sure I will go into PubMed and the article will now pop up mm-hmm. today. Um, <laughs> so it's it's being done or published as we speak. Um, but, you know, the research is, is growing and getting out there. And I think it's hard because when you talk about the pelvic floor in general, um, you know, we have 
we have research on incidence and prevalence of urinary incontinence and leakage, but um, the numbers are still kind of um, all over the place, but it's enough to tell us that it is a significant problem and expected to continue to be a problem that needs to be addressed. So I feel like the research is very supportive so far in informing us there. Um, there is research that pelvic floor PT can help with urinary leakage, and some of that research is starting to be better and better. Um, research on pelvic pain has really been growing quite a bit as well. Um, there's a big study called the MAP study that is is really been looking at chronic pelvic pain and changes in the brain. Um, some really interesting things coming out there. Um, some of the pelvic pain literature seems to be published more on men than women, um, and we do know that that there tends to be, um, in terms of female health, uh, less research than there is on male health in general. Um, so kind of still following a little bit of those trends. Um, in terms of dancers and athletes, there is really not much high quality stuff out there yet. There's a lot of people interested in producing it and working on it. Um, but particularly for dancers, I think the last search I did, um, there's an article from 2002 <laughs> that mentions dancers in terms of stress urinary incontinence. And I can mm -hmm. talk more about what that means. Um, stress urinary incontinence is if you're leaking with coughing, sneezing, or exercise. Mm -hmm. um, but that study included dancers, but it wasn't just about dancers. Um, it was interesting. They, they looked at, I think, 291 to so almost 300 female athletes, um, including dancers. And in terms of reported leakage during activity, 43% of the dancers surveyed reported that they leaked. And that was second only to gymnasts. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was above sort of the report of volleyball players, track and field, basketball players. Um, but again, that was one study quite a while back. <laughs> um, there was a recent article in, I think it was the Research Journal of Obstructive obstetrics and gynecology. That's the only other one I've really been able to find that looked at maybe about 60 dancers. And that was in 2018. Um, and about 20% of them experienced urine loss with dancing. Um, and that is really all I've been able to find wow. in terms of published literature on dance. Um, but if there's more out there, I would certainly love people to send it to me yeah. so I well, can read it. Um, researchers, take note. This is a great area. Yes, I, I think pursue. it's a great area of need. And yes. in terms of a athletic populations as well, there's a big need and a big interest in um, hoping that more researchers will want to take this on because in, in not just dance, but other sports, um, there's a need to know more about what's going on because clinically, um, you know, we see, I see dancers who have issues with their pelvic floor and I see other athletes that have issues with their pelvic floor. Um, the one thing we do seem to know so far is that it's highly underreported yeah. um, because it's often embarrassing to talk mm -hmm. about. It's a sensitive topic. So we, it's hard to get the true numbers because, um, you know, it's not often reported to your instructor or your coach or your healthcare practitioner. Um, let's talk about why this research um, should be done on with dancers and there are several things about um, dance disciplines that might be I don't know beneficial and detrimental to the pelvic floor the ones that first come to mind for me in terms of being a bit problematic are turnout um, mm -hmm. breath holding your breath 
and um, a lot of dancers talk about having a hard time breathing while dancing. And this mm-hmm. this age old cue of pulling up. Um, mm-hmm. So those are the first three that come to mind um, for me. Can we talk about those and then also anything else that I'm missing? Sure. Um, so I think the first one you mentioned was turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, um, you know, that bias us towards certain dance forms, um, because some, some dance forms are not going to require as much, but if you are participating in forms that require turnout quite a bit, um, there's a couple things that I think are important for us to know and observe and would love researchers to look more into this, <laughs> by mm-hmm. the way, um, is that if you're turning out with, proper coordination with your hip ideally we do want to be using our little deep rotators or six little deep rotators in our hip um, because if we clench our big glute max then that restricts our range of motion and compresses the hip well one of those deep rotators is your obturator internus and it's actually very very deep in the hip and directly connected via ligamentous structures to the pelvic floor so it's often just considered part of the pelvic floor in terms of what pelvic floor pts look at. Um, So if you're constantly recruiting that and holding yourself in a turned out position without balancing that out with other things, then you're essentially shortening those muscles a lot and working them a lot and fatiguing them Mm -hmm. potentially. Um, And that activation tends to, um, from what we know so far, tends to ramp up or encourage the pelvic floor to be also activating a lot. So if you think about how you're turned out most of the time, let's say in a lot of your classes, and you're holding that, your pelvic floor is also working as hard as those deep rotators likely. Um, And if you're always shortening and always activating those muscles, but then not going the other way, allowing some internal rotation and more neutral positions of the hip to happen, you're not allowing... adequate, we'll say, lengthening of your pelvic floor and allowing it to do something else, (laughs) sort of thinking about the repetitive activity (laughs) issue Mm -hmm. that we see so common in dance. Um, You know, and I I did a case study, I presented, um, this isn't anything um, that was published, we presented um, as a conduction in conjunction with some researchers at the University of Southern California um, about a year or so ago. And we took, you know, one dancer. Um, So this is one person, so not something to extrapolate everything from, but looked at someone who had a history of pain in their pelvis and had them, we um, hooked them up to EMG system to look at what their muscles were doing, including their pelvic floor and the level of activation. And we had the dancer do simple things, plies, tendus, jumps, in parallel versus turnout. And in this, you know, one dancer that we looked at, we noticed that as soon as there were turned out positions, the level of pelvic floor activation increased for this dancer. Um, We obviously don't have a comparative study yet, but I think it was something that didn't really surprise me um, and people I was working with because anatomically, we know those two regions are interconnected and tend to work together. Um, So I think it's an interesting thing to think about and good to know. Um, for our dancers that potentially just that repetitive work needs to be balanced out. I'm a little curious how you um, mechanically EMG the pelvic floor, but we can do that in another another conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to share. (laughs) Um, Send me me the case study. Those who are interested, email Brooke. Um, (laughs) So... 
Um, you're talking about um, that sort of clenching, maybe we would say, in a um, more casual syntax of the pelvic floor. And I mean, these are muscles that are meant to resist the pull of gravity pretty continuously, right? So um, it gets into interesting conversations questions about like rigidity versus stability and um Mm -hmm. strength and endurance and these various questions um I don't know that we should unpack those right now but certainly that's something that as we talk more about in in dance science we should um probably be thinking about the pelvic floor in terms of those questions Mm -hmm. I agree um perhaps a good segue too than breathing. So some people even refer to yeah. this region as like the pelvic diaphragm. So, mm-hmm. um, and you mentioned earlier that it has this relationship with the respiratory diaphragm and even the roof of the mouth in that area. So let's talk a little bit about that and the breath holding that happens sometimes in dance and um, the interrelationship between the pelvic diaphragm and the respiratory diaphragm. Sure. Um, so trying to, I think, keep it simple and quick so we can talk <laughs> about what happens with breath holding. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, you're right. You know, we mentioned that the pelvic floor sometimes is talked about as the pelvic diaphragm. Some people will only refer to that deepest layer as the pelvic diaphragm. But if you think of that whole region, sort of a diaphragm, it faces upward at our respiratory diaphragm, you know, sitting right underneath that rib cage. Um, and of course, our respiratory diaphragm is, um, again, this is kind of a simple, simplified visualization, but think like umbrella or a parachute shape above and that bowl of the pelvis below. And these two things are positioned, you can't really say they're parallel because they're three-dimensional, they're appositional. And when we have a relaxed breath, let's say, when we take air in and we inhale, the parachute of our respiratory diaphragm should flatten out. It should essentially slightly push our abdominal contents outward, which I know is not Mm -hmm. something dancers love (laughs) because we're often thinking about pulling our tummies in all the time. And when the diaphragm is dropping downward with inhalation, the pelvic floor should, should relax and expand downward as well. And that happens in coordination with the respiratory diaphragm. And then when we exhale, the, we push the air out of our lungs, the diaphragm lifts up and the pelvic floor should lift up back to its resting position. Um, so it should be kind of lifting and lowering essentially with our breath. And I, I, that might speak back to what you mentioned in terms of this um, kind of fluidity rather than rigidity, mm-hmm. um, that breath is really, really a dynamic thing. Um, and and should be dynamic in order for us to be efficient and use it to our advantage. I think the other really cool thing to think about with our diaphragm there and our pelvic floor um, or our pelvic sort of diaphragm area is the respiratory diaphragm connects to our vagal system and that has relationships to kind of our fight or flight regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously that's why breathing and meditation and yoga can be really helpful in dialing us down and keeping us calmer and managing some of our stress responses. Um, The pelvic floor is also through its nerve innervation connected to our fight or flight system and our calming system as well. Um, So, 
our pelvic floor really responds to whether our system is in fight or flight mm-hmm. or in um, more of a calm state. Um, so they really do work together. And the last thing I'll also say about that is that we also have our sort of diaphragm about that, our glottal system and our voice, um, which of course can be involved in that breath holding and interact with the pressures. Um, so in dancers um, who tend to have a pattern of breath holding, there could be lots of reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're holding your breath and you're not inhaling and exhaling as fully as you can, um, in terms of the mechanics with the pelvic floor, then you're keeping your diaphragm pretty rigid and usually held up. I think that's often associated with this posture where maybe the ribs are flared, the belly's sucked in, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you've got that rib cage open and rigid, then your diaphragm isn't really going through its full excursion. It's not dropping fully and three-dimensionally out to the sides. And what your diaphragm is not doing, your pelvic floor is probably not doing because they work together. Um, so it's going to likely get you into the pattern where your pelvic floor stays maybe up in your nose, mm-hmm. <laughs> in quotes. Um, and then you're, you're, you're leaving it in this pattern of really being shortened or having a lot of tone potentially. Um, so that's something I work on a lot with dancers and other athletes if they tend to be a breath holder is learning how to change those mechanics and figure out what's behind it as well. Maybe what imbalances are there that are causing the breath to be held, um, or maybe it's just habit. Um, but that's something, something that also I think is interesting is if you're sucking your belly in and holding your breath and you're, you're kind of puffing that rib cage out, then you're essentially like popping open the front of the lid and your diaphragm is no longer facing your pelvic floor Mm -hmm. in the same relationship. So you're starting to play with that relationship during the times where maybe you you could have them facing each other more often right. so that they can work more easily. So there's like that spatial relationship as well as the um, movement relationship. Yeah. yeah. And of course we know, I mean, dancers, you, we've got to go through a lot of extreme ranges of motion. So it's not like you can dance around and keep your diaphragm facing your pelvic floor all day. That's not <laughs> the goal. Right, right. Um, because it would perhaps be less interesting choreographically. Mm-hmm. Um, but at times where it maybe could benefit from that, where we're just in a more neutral posture, then why not put it there? Right. You know, right. and use it to our advantage. Um, and I think you, you also mentioned sort of that, that, drawing up or pulling up or sucking in. Right. Yeah. So you've almost segued into that with the breathing in terms of the alignment and the pulling up. And I think, yeah, dancers have this idea that the more they pull in their stomach, the better end statement. Uh And and likewise, I I will say I was a dancer and I was a competitive gymnast before I started dancing. Um, And I learned that as a gymnast as well, but I, I thought that like the key to me being super strong and me and my flat abs when I was dancing was to suck my belly in all the time. Yep. Um, yep. What a great idea. And, and, and even, um, even Pilates clients, you know, particularly if they're like postpartum, they've done a little mm-hmm. work in this area. They, they think they should be using their pelvic floor for, for everything, you know, that they're trying mm-hmm. to contract their pelvic floor all the time. Um, so yeah. yeah. Can you talk more about, um, pulling up when it's needed, when it shouldn't be used, um, maybe, yeah, when and how much do, should we yeah. be engaging this region? 
I, you know, I think it's such an interesting question and it likely stems, you know, I will sort of put us, let's say physical therapists kind of um, out there in terms of, you know, we've maybe perpetuated it in our field as well. Um, there was a lot of research that came out that really informed us a lot about the transverse abdominis, the deepest muscle, mm -hmm. you know, and drawing it in and how it coordinates with the pelvic floor. Um, and then I think, you know, as things go, we latch onto something mm -hmm. <laughs> um, with that information and take it to 150%. Um, and, and certainly I, I think um, what some PTs will talk about and some people that are out there really that are um, great, have great ways of educating, we'll talk about matching your attention to the task mm -hmm. um, yeah. at hand. And so if you are just lying there on your back performing a very, like marching your legs right. and you're a dancer and you're capable of much, much more than that, does your abdominal wall need to be sucking in to exactly. keep you from moving? Likely not. I let's, mean, let's save that for your <laughs> grand allegro or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or let's say if you're going to lift someone mm -hmm. overhead, then certainly you need to ramp up that pressure. Um, but I mean, obviously, our this is again a very simplified analogy. Um, but if you think about maybe your trunk and the body, like a tube of toothpaste, and you're going to squeeze the center part of the tube really, really hard. And maybe then your pelvic floor is not ready for that. Um, something's going to leak or so the pressure is going to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times it's actually more pressure, more sucking in. Or if you think about the Coke can, you're actually denting the Coke can in. Mm -hmm. And then when gravity pu pushes down on that Coke can, you're going to bend. Right. Um, and your forces are going to transfer differently. So it actually wouldn't be to your advantage to be sucked in when you don't need to be. Um, and so there are lots of ways that you can learn to, you know, I tend to retrain. Um, I either just get people to relax or I train them to activate in a more cylindrical way, which for a lot of dancers and athletes is really foreign and feels like you're pooching your belly. Um, but uh, it's it's good to learn something new and not always move the same way you've been moving, particularly if, not, if it's not getting you where you want. Um, but yeah, I, and certainly we need more of that that stiffening when when you're going to do a task that's really loaded and really hard. So it's not that it's never useful, but um, a lot of times it's way more than we need. Yeah, no, I think that matching the effort to the task is, and I think Joseph Pilates said, don't use a 15 pound effort for a five pound job. Yeah. Maybe other people yeah. said it too. I, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> but if you I think get it's credit. A, it's but... a, a beautiful thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of, yeah, just um, some of that overworking and overdoing. And when I see, um, you know, clinically see patients that have more of a pelvic pain presentation, a lot of times they're really tight and tender or have tender points along their abdominal wall that actually can perpetuate their feeling of urinary urgency. So sometimes mm. even the abdominal wall sensations there can refer right. to the pelvis and complicate your sensations or your symptoms. And, and so if you learn to relax through that and you learn to balance that out, that can be really helpful in treating pelvic floor dysfunction. Great. Um, so those are some of the sort of behavioral issues in dance, but let's also talk about other factors, you mentioned earlier hypermobility as being mm -hmm. a risk factor for prolapse. Um, is it also a risk factor for other pelvic floor dysfunction? 
Um, you know, I, I will say that I'm probably not as well-versed on that particular connection in terms mm-hmm. of the literature. Um, but in terms of clinically, um, patient, if you have um, a diagnosed hypermobility disorder, whether you're a dancer or not, that is quite significant, sometimes what, I, what we see clinically is then the pelvic floor is just working so hard mm-hmm. to try to create safety and stability as a reaction. And that has sort of cascaded into symptoms. Right. Um, and so that's, that's where maybe pelvic pain would be related to that. Although I'm not you know, sure if there's some literature linking that, um, but it certainly is something that, that theoretically plays out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that hypermobility issue um, you know, and I think we see it in other um, joints of the body in dancers. If you've if you've got an issue with hypermobility, um, goodness, in your hips, um, then you know the hip is anatomically directly closely connected to the pelvic floor. So if um, your body is trying to manage that. Um, with some compensations, your pelvic floor could be one of the areas that's compensating for that, certainly. Um, you know, and we see that in other areas of the body in our dancers. And, and so I think um, when we look at those sort of orthopedic things, the same type of theoretical thought process can apply very easily to the pelvic floor region as well. Right. Um, and then this seems to be a bit controversial. Um, let's talk a bit about hormone and pelvic floor and nutrition um, because there is some there's some stuff circulating about you know oh you shouldn't eat if you have pelvic floor dysfunction don't eat beans because of the estrogen levels or you know you you see this stuff floating around um, which can you know breed orthorexia and Sure. You know, maybe, maybe, but is it worth it? Like, is it true and does it need to be addressed? And, you know, when we talk specifically about dancers and we talk about eating disorder or relative energy deficiency, mm-hmm. um, how do those issues all <clears throat> sort of triangulate and relate to the pelvic floor? Yeah, I think it is such a, such an interesting set of information. And I think especially when it comes to nutrition and I know, you know, on Dance World Podcast, you've had some great um, people come on to talk about this too. Um, I, I think that I might start from the hormone side, um, mm-hmm. maybe to, to uh, tie it together. So, in biology. Um, <laughs> what's yes. Uh, so basically, um, let, and I specialize much more in females than male um, pelvises, I will just say, when it comes to the pelvic floor. I treat orthopedically everybody, but um, sort of where I, my interest area lies. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going to start with the hormone thing. So our, for the female pel- biologically female pelvic floor, the vulvar region, which is the region outside the vagina, outside, um, is, and the vaginal walls, are dependent on appropriate levels of estrogen and even testosterone as well. Mm-hmm. And our, obviously our regulation for females for our menstrual cycle is very dependent on having adequately, adequate levels of the hormones that we need to produce ovulation. Um, and, you know, many people will talk about the um, having regular periods as something that is essentially a good marker of of your general health as mm-hmm. a female. Um, 
so if the pelvic floor is in is trying to function in an environment where it is um, we'll just use estrogen depletion as an example um, that happens um, sort of as a typical thing so a good example is postpartum Mm -hmm. so when a woman has delivered post baby it is part of the normal process that estrogen levels will be low um, temporarily and usually will, um, depending whether you're breastfeeding or not, they, they will regulate after the cessation of breastfeeding, sometimes taking several months. It depends on, you know, each individual. But when estrogen levels are low, we tend to see that the pelvic floor um, can be more susceptible to pain um, because it's not in the environment that has its regular levels of estrogen, for example. So let's take an, a dancer, an athlete, who maybe is not getting adequate nutrition, not getting enough, um, and maybe that's paired with poor recuperation, lack of sleep, um, and really just sort of being depleted in, in the nourishment that, that she needs, then that can throw off our regulatory system and we can actually be low in estrogen Mm -hmm. and that can affect certainly the pelvic floor Um, and you can think of the example that we have in postpartum women and also um, menopausal women as well Um, so that's probably kind of maybe a helpful way to understand how the hormones relate to our susceptibility to things like pelvic floor pain Um, that I I think is of concern with dancers um, in terms of our concern with, with getting enough and adequate nutrition. Um, so, so I think that's, that's maybe covering the hormone part. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Uh, like in the, in the, um, what used to be female athlete triad, which we're moving towards red, um, relative energy efficiency and dance. Um, yeah. So amenorrhea is one of the points in that, um, Mm -hmm. diagnosis. So, you're looking there at directly at hormone changes and that they then yeah. would have a, almost a mechanical effect in this region, potentially. Yeah. 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 The, you know, it, it will affect even the quality of the tissue, the mm-hmm. tissue lining mm-hmm. um, and the strength of our tissue. And the muscle so, tissue. Um, and the, so that's, yeah. that's certainly going to, to have the potential to affect the pelvic floor. I think the other thing with REDS, um, with relative energy nutrient deficiency in sport, um, you know, REDS can lead to obviously a cascade of a lot of different things. Um, but other things that can be associated with REDS are things like constipation and mm. alteration in DI function. Uh-huh. And constipation, so if you're backed up, and if you look at an anatomical image of, um, let's say, the female pelvis and you've got um, bladder, uterus, and then your bowels behind, um, if you are backed up, that's actually increasing pressure and taking up space. Um, and that can, for a lot of patients, that can irritate or perpetuate their bladder irritation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it can increase urgency. It can increase frequency. It can actually increase um, symptoms of leakage. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's just not even for REDS, but constipation alone is something that really can be addressed that can help out with urinary symptoms. Um, and I think the other thing that we see with REDS um, that's starting to come out um, is also just this elevated cortisol levels and elevated mm. levels of stress hormone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of sending us into that fight or flight state as well certainly isn't, isn't going to help with, right. um, 
if you're already experiencing pelvic floor dysfunction. Right. So that's all kind of addressing um, when we have inadequate nutrition. What about nutritional choices? So does it does diet does do dietary choices matter? You know, it. I don't. We always love to say it depends on the patient, yeah. depends on the person. I feel like that's such an easy way to, to yeah, answer that. Um, but essentially, it does. There are um, there is literature supporting, and there are typical known blat what we call bladder irritants. So things that tend. So for someone who's really struggling with, you know, they have to pee every 30 minutes and they get strong urge, um, we'll often encourage um, patients to do something called a bladder diary where they're really marking down what they're taking in and whether or not that seems linked with increasing their symptoms or even their leakage. Um, and there, it, it is still variable per person. It might depend on whether they have a, like an actual allergy to a food or maybe their body is already just in a stress state and tends to um, be very reactive, <laughs> having a lot of maybe histamine reactions to things. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of that is where we work with, you know, MDs and, and, and things like that to figure that out. But you know, some for some spicy foods um, or certain citrus foods can be irritating. Alcohol, um, for a lot of people, certain types of teas can be bladder irritants. Um, but I really have seen that it, it can vary patient to patient. The thing that I hesitate with is, um, and this might link to what you were saying about the discussions that are coming out now with things like orthorexia, is... I think it's it's very we don't have enough data to give mm-hmm. us like this blanket statement mm-hmm. that one food is bad for everybody. Right. And even when it comes to the pelvic floor and I think that it creates a lot of fear. Yeah. And you see it creating a lot of fear in patients. Which also um, raises cortisol levels, which also affects yeah. pelvic function. And 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 I think it can sometimes overcomplicate mm-hmm. things. Um and and so I will say, yes, there are certain association with certain foods that typically can cause bladder irritation, or certainly when we think from the nutritional standpoint, um, this might not, you know, if you're eating a food that your body doesn't necessarily agree with and your body reacts with constipation mm-hmm. or with going the other way and you're having loose stools, that can aggravate your pelvic floor, certainly. So it, it is important to address not only proper nourishment, um, so you're getting enough of, of what you need to heal, but, you know, it can be helpful to look at things that might irritate your GI system for right. you. Um, but I think if you maybe zoom out a lot with that, um, I think it's really easier for us to for- forget that things like sleep and laughing and being with friends and stress management can be so hugely helpful for our gut and for our healing and can be simpler yeah. <laughs> um, in some senses yeah. than trying to follow every food you eat. Yeah. Um, so uh, I may, I usually start with that even before they go into, you know, and I, I will always refer to a nutritionist and someone's expert in nutrition if a patient wants to explore that and they defer to the experts there. Um, but but sometimes it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that complicated. Yeah. Um, depending on the person, because you could eat, eat what you think is the most nourishing diet in the world. But if you are sleeping two hours a night and, um, have not addressed anything mindful, it's, you're still not hitting on maybe something that, that could help you even more. 
Great. Um, so I want to talk in the end here a little bit about um, about pregnancy. We both have children, and um, mm-hmm. and so I want to talk about the dancing um, postpartum pelvic floor briefly, and then just sort of talk, leave people with a few practical applications. So, um, you know, I often meet with the other mothers in the bathroom right before before Petite Allegro at ballet class, you know, we call it the, mm-hmm. the postpartum pre-Petite Allegro pee. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, you know, obviously there's lots of professional dancers who get right back to dancing. And um, so how does pregnancy and birth um, affect dancers in particular, would you say? And what do dancers need to be conscientious of as they make their way back into dance after um, delivery? Um, oh goodness. So, um, obviously pregnancy, I mean, we can have a long discussion about how pregnancy changes the body. Um, but of (laughs) course you're going to be incurring, um, we can just put it this way. Your, your body is changing to grow a human being for nine plus months. It takes that long for Mm -hmm. your body to change. Um, there are hormonal and mechanical changes in your posture, in the natural, um, way that your rib cage needs to move out of the way as your baby takes up space. Um, your ligaments surrounding the pelvis are getting ready for labor and delivery. Um, the laxity of your ligaments adjusts to get ready for birth. Um, you also have the weight of baby on your pelvic floor as you are moving. Um, you know, so there's a lot of changes that happen. Um, and I think you know, pregnancy and, and delivery is so different for every woman. Um, but if you deliver vaginally, um, you know, there are different computer models that have looked at how much your pelvic floor muscles need to stretch in the second stage of labor in order for baby to pass through. And we'll just say it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And your pelvic floor is made to stretch a lot. You know, we were made for this (laughs) to be able to birth babies. Um, but it is, the amount of stretch that, that we're looking at is more than your other muscles in the body can typically tolerate stretch right. before they have a yeah. tear. Yeah. So, um, and it is, you know, women can experience um, various degrees of vaginal tearing and trauma to nerves and things like that, depending on how, um, you know, the vaginal delivery went. But, you know, we'll say in the simplest terms, you've had large stretching to that tissue. Mm-hmm. Um and some research has shown that that um, area doesn't truly recover its tissue quality and maximize it until four to six months post-delivery. Um, this doesn't mean you need to wait six months to do what you do. Um, but I think it's just important to know that um, to expect yourself to be able to just hop right back into things easily. And if that's not happening for you, you know, that that's pretty common that mm-hmm. you need healing time. If you have surgery, if you tore a muscle in any other part of the body, you wouldn't just get up and, you know, take a full day of dance classes the next right. day. Um, so I think it's important to just know that there is a recovery period for tissue healing in your body that typically takes months. Um, you're also estrogen depleted um, postpartum for a while. And so your pelvic floor is going to be a little bit more sensitive to things. Um, there's lots of things that can, can help with that, um, with pelvic floor PT. Um, and also um, know that your abdominal, I, I think it's probably too much to get into the discussion of 
um, diastasis recti. Mm -hmm. Um, But your abdominal wall has been significantly stretched, um, regardless of whether your separation doesn't close, you know, in the same way that someone else's might. Your abdominal wall has had huge stretch in your trunk. And so it needs to learn how to feel where it is again. Um, And you have to rebuild that awareness in order to function as efficiently as you want to. and then even if, you know, if you have a C-section, um, you've had an abdominal surgery. Um, and that's something to just sort of know that typically, I think it's something like six weeks post-C-section, there's only about 50% of the tensile strength returned to the tissues because there's recovery time needed. Um, you can also have some scar sensitivity there. It can alter the way that you might sense or feel your abdominals. So, um Respect healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, dancers are pretty amazing movers, and you can you can figure it out. You can usually do what you need to do, whether or not your muscles have the capacity to do it. I think that we're great at deceiving the audience, right? Yeah. Um, but it, you know, and I, I will say it's also you know there's a there's a lot of talk that started to go on, but it's so needed that postpartum care, you know, here in the U.S. for example, is not great. It needs to be improved, but. Um, I would recommend that everyone postpartum have an assessment with a pelvic floor physical therapist if you can and just know where you're at and where that might be compared to your baseline and get some strategies to help you feel really confident in feeling like you're not scared that you're doing too much or too little, you know. Um. So lastly, could you just leave us with a little bit of practical advice, um, both for dancers and practitioners? Um, What should be done to maintain good pelvic floor health? And um, what should practitioners who maybe aren't pelvic floor experts, either doctors or therapists of different kinds, um, be on the lookout for? Sure. Um, so in terms of, um, what dancers should know to maintain good pelvic health, um, I think in terms of the, the big picture, and this probably applies to the health of other regions in your body, um, stress management, mindfulness, dancers, we're in a highly competitive, highly stressful job, career, pursuit, passion. Um, and I think that that's really, really important uh, to address our stress reaction system, because um, we know that that's very, very linked to the pelvic floor. Again, nourishing your body, um, getting lots of good nutrition, um, addressing constipation if you can. That's a huge thing, and I think it is of a concern for dancers and athletes. Um, You know, hydrate adequately, get um, some fiber to get things moving, um, get your yoga blocks or your squatty potty. Um, If you can't afford a squatty potty, yoga blocks or like some people scoot their trash can over and put their feet on it. You know, you don't need anything fancy to put your feet up and bring your knees higher. Um, I would also say um, you can incorporate some simple things to um, get your pelvic floor into a more lengthened position. There are a lot of yoga positions, deep yoga squats, um, happy baby that can be really easy. I think um, those were introduced also in that recent dance magazine article that came Mm -hmm. out. Um, And those are easy and they're lovely and can be very effective. Um, If you turn out in your hips a lot, move the other way, do some things that, that encourage some hip internal rotation, some neutral postures. Um, so you balance that out. Um, I would say those are kind of some of the big things that hopefully are simple enough. Um, and breathing, um, learn to breathe in different ways than your usual way and, and observe 
whether or not you may notice if you didn't before, if you breath hold or if you compensate with certain ways of holding your rib cage. So be aware of different ways you might train that um, to move more three-dimensionally and get your pelvic floor moving. Great. Um, and I think you talked about then what practitioners. What practitioners? Yeah. Um, I would say the biggest thing is know that pelvic floor dysfunction exists and that it should be something that is screened for. Um, that, I think, speaks to two different things. So if you have a dancer who is returning to dance postpartum, you better screen for pelvic floor dysfunction somehow. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're, you might be the only person that thinks to ask those questions of that person. Um, you know, don't assume that they had someone ask them about it, even at their six week postnatal follow-up. Um, unfortunately don't assume that that's been cleared. Um, and, and I would say, you know, the other thing is if you're kind of on the orthopedic end, particularly if you're seeing a dancer who has low back pain and hip or, and, or hip pain or dysfunction, the pelvic floor is red in between those two spots And the pelvic floor is often a great deceiver. It can refer pain to those areas quite easily. So screen for it. Um, And that could be asking a simple set of questions. Um, Ask about leakage. Ask if they've fallen on their tailbone before. Um, You know, there are some some questionnaires that you can also include in intake forms um, if if you need to work on improving your comfort with asking questions about the pelvis, Um, you know, and... Those can be found easily uh, if you look on the um, American PT Association. They have um, a section for women's health. You can access resources there. Um, There's lots of different resources out there. Um, Pelvic Guru is a great set of resources. Um, I'd be happy to also include a list that we could that Mm -hmm. I can give you to um, that we could put up. Um, There's lots of different questionnaires you can download that you could easily include in an intake form um, that are are validated measures that can help with a simple set of questions, flag whether someone has um, a concern about their pelvic floor, and that's when you can um, refer them to pelvic floor PT to at least get assessed. Um, there's a lot of times where if, if I'm primarily, you know, I work with orthopedic dysfunction a lot. Um, so I typically can work with both with my patients, but if it's something where they're seeing me and they want to focus on pelvic floor, I work with someone else who might be working on their orthopedic dysfunction and we really team together. Um, so I think the screening is the biggest thing. Know that it's out there. Don't assume that someone has already asked this person about it. Um, don't assume that they might easily report it yeah. um, because we don't often know that it might be an abnormal symptom. Um, and yeah, I think that that can help us get the word out there and, and help hopefully get people who need the care to the, to a place that can help them. Great. Thank you so much, Brooke. This has been very informative. I've learned a lot. Um, I'm so glad that we have broached this topic on dance. Well, but um there's a lot that we could talk more about. Um, so we'll, we'll wrap it up here and um, maybe talk more in the future, but thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was great talking with you. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Like what you hear? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. 
You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about our podcast by visiting www.dancewellpodcast.com. We wouldn't be where we are without generous contributions from our listeners. Your contributions help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you would like to make a contribution to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.